and welcome back to The Bunker Daily. I'm Yelena Sofronievich. You just heard Satan by friends of the podcast Orbital from their new best of 30-something out now. But 666, the number of the beast, is also the number of the Bunker podcast we reached today. So to celebrate or commiserate, we're going straight to hell and looking at Satan in pop culture, from the snake in the Garden of Eden via Dante's Inferno and heavy metal to a modern gay icon and whether these demons are really created in our own image. To talk everything about the devil, I'm delighted to be joined by two very special guests. Erin Kulf is the host of the Myth Monsters podcast. Hello, Erin. Hello. And dialing in from Down Under, that's Australia, not the underworld, is Michael David Barbazut, a research fellow at Australian Catholic University. Hi, Michael. Hi. Hello. So firstly, let's do a devil myth debunk. So Western Christianity's first image of the devil is the snake in the Garden of Eden. But Erin, where does the devil actually come from? And don't just say hell. (laughs) I wish I could just say hell. That's a nice, easy answer. (laughs) I mean, the roots are very much rooted within religion in basically every pretense that we've got in these mainline religions. We've got Lucifer within the Christianity path and Judaism, uh, starting with the Second Temple within Judaism as well. And it's all to do with that fallen angel ideal that we've got this absolutely top tier angel being Lucifer and being one of these monsters, the seraphim, the perfect worshippers of God to the falling down and betrayal of God and Christ and all of that jazz falling down to be the absolute epitome of evil within that kind of folklore. It's always been my impression, of course, that the that what we would regard as the Judeo-Christian assumption of Satan and all the things that he does in the Bible uh, come together in the course of late antiquity, when you have a lot of biblical characters and biblical uh, manifestations of spiritual beings that get lobbed together and put together under one character. And that generally happens in the early years of Christianity. And then you get to the sort of thing I study in the Middle Ages, where he definitely is an established character. (laughs) So can you distinguish them between those different forms? Because names like Devil, Beelzebub, El Diablo, they all kind of get clubbed together into one. The first one that I would really want to distinguish are things like uh, where we get Satan, which I think technically really just means opposer or something closer to an obstacle. So a good example of this that normally people don't see would be the story of Balaam and the donkey in Numbers 22, where a donkey just stops because there's an angel in the way. The donkey can see it, but the guy riding it named Balaam can't. But in the text, that angel is a Satan because it's opposing uh, Balaam's progress down this road and also is an obstacle to him. And it's translated in every copy of the Bible you're quickly going to look at as angel. But originally, the word is the same. Even the word devil, um, etymology-wise, comes from the Greek word diablos, which means to slander. And then in contrast to that, you've got the Sanskrit garate, which means he lifts up. So they're very much opposing, and you can see where the religion comes into that, but also where that idea of the devil becoming Satan and all of these kind of mixed together with their definitions in just etymology. I mean, even Lucifer, in contrast to that, that name literally means son of dawn, which is a gorgeous etymology to that name that we really stereotypically put to something that's really quite evil. Mm. And our kind of predominant image of the devil in pop culture is this Halloween form of a red man with horns. 
How has this image changed over time and where did that image in particular come from? For me, one of the interesting things about the devil, at least historically and the way that he looks, is that this is actually one of the few places where you have people in the deep past and like medieval theologians, for example, discussing what we would recognize to be the social construction of social roles and even the social construction of gender. Because to them, it's a debatable question, does the devil even have a body? Is he even, does he even have a physical body? By the time you're in the high Middle Ages, by the 12th century, the 13th century, the majority of people are going to say that an angel doesn't have a body and a demon doesn't have a body. And so whenever they appear and do anything, the form that they take on is an act of communication with human beings. It's a performance. Everything about them is a performance. So whenever they appear as a man or they appear as a woman, this is for the mission that they're undertaking, whatever they want to convey to the people that they're interacting with. I also think as well, like even in something like Hinduism, there is an idea of an evil, but it's considered natural. There is no physical being as to the devil within Hinduism. It's very much a a natural thing that can happen to people. I love that idea. And also the idea of like, if you think of modern paganism and all of those umbrella religions that come underneath it, so Hellenism, stuff like that. You've got the Greek gods, for example, there is no evil god within them. They're all very, the idea of it is to be like people and people have their own temptations. They have their own whims. Mm. And as much as people like to villainize Hades due to Disney's Hercules and, you know, good omens and all this stuff, it's very much a case of actually there are no evil characters. Evil is inherently not inner being. And I think as well, kind of like if we think of that in terms of how the shape of the devil has changed and how he looks has changed, I think in terms of the different religions looking at what the devil looks like, we've got this like stereotypical Halloween version, which we've all kind of associated with red, evil, red, lust, red, desire, blood, all of those kind of evil things are very rooted within red. But then we've got other religions that like, for example, Hades, everyone kind of thinks of that black, that death, the the blue even from Disney's Hercules is like not evil, but it's like soulful almost. Mm. One of the representations of the devil that I came across was Liz Hurley in the 2000 film uh, Bedazzled, in which she says, yes, most men think they're God. This one just happens to be right after she's met him. Is the devil always a he? And do you think if so, that the devil as an image, has also served as a weapon of sexism as well as racism and other forms of marginalization? Absolutely. I I certainly think that the devil has been drafted to perform many functions of social control Mm. um, against uh, various side groups or outside groups of society. But I think one of the interesting things about some of the theologians' versions of, of the devil in the past is that they don't have sex because they don't have bodies. So what we are really interrogating are some of the other associated notions of gender. And so when we talk about angels, we almost always revert to he's when we're talking because we're talking about noble spirits that are defined by complicated thinking and abstract reasoning which very often in our misogynistic past are considered to be masculine undertakings. And then when demons and the devil appear as female, they're kind of like the succubus, Mm. right? And this is just kind of shows us some of the jaundiced ideas of what women are good for, supposedly. 
That's fascinating. And Erin, the British Museum currently have an exhibition on called Feminine Power, and it shows Kiki Smith's amazing aerial statue of Lilith, who was Adam's first wife, but is now known by some as the wife of Satan. What's her story? Oh, she's absolutely fantastic. She is one of my favourite <laughs> characters within folklore and mythology. And it's weird to call definitely a Jewish character most definitely mythology I suppose but because she's kind of merged into this devil character she very much is considered the mother of demons and even in you know modern media now uh, Diablo 4 is set to come out very soon the video game she's the main villain in that as mother of demons and she rooted in the idea that she was Adam's first wife made from the same clay And actually, when she refused to bow to Adam because she was made of the same clay, she was completely shunned and considered very much a temptress and all of the terrible things that women are called under the sun and went on to birth the Lilu, which are a vampiric sort of monster that target pregnant women, all to do with femininity and the destruction of seduction and feminine values such as childhood, motherhood, all of those kind of things. So she is an amazing character. And yeah, I absolutely love her as a character. (laughs) And you've both pointed out about how the devil is a sort of social construction as the outcast from our own society. Michael, how closely connected are ideas about the divine and the demonic? Historically for us, I think they're very, very closely connected. And one of the ways maybe in our more recent past, they're really directly connected is because one is often taken as proof of the other. So maybe God might be a little distant. The divine miracles might be harder to find than horror and terror are. And so if you can make negative things into an indirect proof of the divine, there's a utility in that. And so a person who made exactly that argument would be uh, King James, mm. the King James Bible, you know, who found in witchcraft and in the and in demons uh, proof of God. Ah, hello. It's nice to see you all here. Now, as the more perceptive of you probably realized by now, this is hell. And I am the devil. Good evening. Uh, But you can call me Toby, if you like. We, We try to keep things informal here, as well as infernal. Um, That's just a little joke of mine. I tell it every time. Now, you're all here for eternity, Ooh. which I hardly need tell you is a heck of a long time. Um, so you're... That was Rowan Atkinson's infamous Toby the Devil, keeping things informal and infernal from hell. Erin, do you think that this kind of comedy or mocking the idea of the devil detaches us from better understanding these historical roots? I like the idea of that, but I think actually it increases our knowledge of Mm. and actually opens it up to a whole new audience that potentially aren't interested in the roots of this it's people might not be growing up in the church or growing up with any kind of religious notions and because that's kind of where the idea of the devil comes from I think this intrinsically gives a really good very sorted measure into the looks at the devil and actually portrays a modern 
adaptation of what the devil could be mm. without the religion attached. We're not a religious society in terms of everyone belongs to one religion anymore. It's especially here in the UK. I think it's a great way to get folklore and actually that idea of good versus evil into a really fun comedic role where before it has been something that naturally people fear. Satan saturates our screens. There's TV series like Sabrina, Lucifer, Good Omens, even Stranger Things. We've got The Devil Wears Prada and now hit documentaries like Hail Satan. Why do you think he is so pervasive in popular culture? I think everyone likes a bad boy. If I'm completely <laughs> honest, uh, and, and as well, um, look at the rise of true crime, right? It's mm. that mm. fascination with something that is so inherently negative and most of the time something that you or I couldn't even imagine doing. Like for me, I love a bit of true crime. I love a bit of serial killers, me. And if you look at someone like Son of Sam, who said he was being talked to by a dog that was possessed by the devil. It's stuff like that where you're like, I just don't understand how someone could go and then kill people or hurt people in those kind of ways. And I think there's a natural human curiosity to something that most of us can't put that capacity to and even carry out, to be honest. But I I think naturally we're kind of drawn to that curiosity rather than, I guess, with someone like Eddie Munson in Stranger Things, that uh, obsession with how potentially they look or come across. So it's I think it's that that little curiosity of, oh, what if what if I could do that? Or why can't I do that? One of the things that's always interesting to me, I think, also in our attention to the devil are for those of us who might have grown up in a somewhat rel- religious background, but we knew that our own identity didn't quite fit in. We didn't quite belong. Mm. And so we grew up kind of considering, well, who else then is in the club of the outside people? Mm. If I can't really be an inside person, you know, for instance, if I'm gay and I've grown up in a, in a, you know, a conservative Baptist household, just choosing an example for no reason from random, um, <laughs> that you, you then start considering who, who your peers might be. Mm. And sometimes these are not peers that you want to have, or these are peers that you need to change somehow to reinvent in the course of making an identity for yourself. And so I think some of the business that we see with devils and demons is also part of reinvention. Do you think that Satan has been appropriated as a sort of symbol for social unease or an easy scapegoat for society's own ills? Oh, 100%. A scapegoat, 100%. Uh, You know, just as the satanic panic, he was the pure scapegoat for these horrendous child abuse cases and it's Mm. it's this idea that actually most of those people didn't practice satanism and even again serial killers quoting that they were told to do things by the devil you know were they or were they just considerably mentally ill or just plain evil um i think a hundred percent and even like if we think of the witch craze in the 1500s and 1600s here in europe All of it was scapegoated through being marginalised and, you know, that woman down the road who was Mm. poor and loved alchemy a little bit and helped women in childbirth, all of those things. It was very much, this is a woman on her own, we need to get rid of her, we don't like her, she's a witch. And it's that full, just easy target to push into Mm. something that people naturally fear. I want to come on and talk about witchcraft a little bit more later on. But Michael, you've written extensively about the moral panic of satanic panic. Can you tell me what exactly it was and what forms of culture were targeted? 
Well, so I was first drawn to engage with this when I started reading about Pizzagate, which is a recent form of the satanic panic Mm -hmm. in the United States. And reading these accusations, I thought to myself, wow, I've seen this before. And the first thing I was thinking about was even older than witchcraft. It was uh, early attacks against heretics in the Middle Ages, particularly like the 11th century stuff, like the very first time people got burned alive. It sounded just like the Pizzagate accusations. And so I started trying to think, well, what is linking all of this together? And that's what brought me to engage more deeply with the satanic panic and the long history of it, because it is a form of the witchcraft accusation, which is also a form of accusations used against Jewish people, against Christian heretics, and against early Christians in the late Roman world. The satanic panic really took off in in America in the 80s and the early 90s with a general concern through many people in society that there were hidden satanic cults active throughout North America who were gathering to do occult rituals in secret, in basements, in forests, in in forbidden nasty places, to conspire against society and particularly to abuse children either sexually or by literally sacrificing them. And this led people to ascribe satanic cults to all kinds of supposed criminal activity that may or may not have actually been going on but what in almost every single case was proven to not be a satanic cult related to it upon investigation. One of the really interesting things about the satanic panic to me also uh, that's along the lines of what we're talking about is it's also a way to avoid actually dealing with the serious and real causes of things Mm, by ascribing cosmic evil to it. So one of the things that really was happening in the 70s and then in the 80s was a greater awareness that uh, children are abused, that violence happens in families and in the home. And so instead of tackling it in pop culture through an awareness that most of the violence against children happens in the home, instead, we culturally started imagining a vast web of cosmic evil as the cause for this, instead of what we were actually being confronted with. And despite its name, the Church of Satan doesn't actually believe in a Christian notion of Satan, nor believe in or worship the devil. Michael, what do they believe or disbelieve then? So first, I think in a North American context, it's very important to differentiate between two organizations that are easy to confuse with each other, which is the Church of Satan and the Satanic Temple. Mm-hmm. And they, they do different things. So the Satanic Temple is the one that might be more familiar to us for its advocacy work and filing a lot of lawsuits against what its leaders describe as theocratic overreach in North America. What they believe in, and also the Church of Satan as well, is that Satan is not a real cosmic being that they're siding with, but instead a set of symbols for things. And you mentioned earlier how the Hebrew root of the word Satan is opposer or the one who questions Do they argue then that Satan is merely the ultimate sceptic, political critic? I think they would point to that social function in literature, you know, as a literary character and say that this is an inspiration that people should take from thinking about this character and the symbolism of this character. Because uh, especially for the Satanic Temple, they argue also that one of the major tasks that people need to undertake is empathy for each other. 
and concern for each other rather than a kind of harmful judgmental attitude is what I think they would stress. I think as well, just the the idea of the satanic temple is all about that rebellion against conformity within other religions and that that idea that evil is so easily placed upon one big bad, so to say. I just love the idea that they use these amazing symbols such as Baphomet and the goats and all of this stuff to represent what they're actually saying. And I think people jump to so many conclusions when they look at the Satanic Temple. But actually, when you do read their manifesto, I suppose, and their their kind of guidelines, they're so open and easily, not manipulatable, but very easy to kind of interpret in whichever way you kind of want. It's so free in comparison to what they're actually rebelling against. And I just love the idea of that for them. So for complete outsiders, tell me about some of the things that these organisations stand for. What I interpret from it at least, and that's it, it's very much open to interpretation. They do have almost a set of commandments, very much like the uh, Judeo-Christian stuff. But it just seems it's, as Michael said, treating people with empathy and being respectful, not disrespecting the culture or the land you're in. It's very much very nice and easy interpretable sentences, but some that are really open to you kind of going, oh, well, I won't disrespect anything. It's it's very much a really nice basis as well in comparison to modern day paganism in the sense that it's very free and open and there's not really many constraints to it. And in an American context, I think they're also champions of the separation between church and state. Hello, I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now? The politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's stick with politics then. Erin, you mentioned about witches earlier, and it's notable that witchcraft is now bigger than Joe Biden on TikTok, with videos tagged hashtag witch talk garnering 50% more views. Social media is now saturated with references to things like manifesting or witch core clothing. Why do you think there's been this resurgence in interest, especially amongst women and young people? I think naturally, as women, we're driven to the idea of the witch craze and actually to the idea of a modern witch because for us it was something that was very marginalised against women a lot of the time and especially stereotypically when we think of the witch craze, we don't think of the the few men that were actually executed in any way. We tend to think automatically of these crones or women who got pregnant outside of wedlock, all of these kind of women who were very much marginalised. I mean, look at the Pendle witch trials. They were all women and three of them were from the same family. They all turned each other in. So I think that kind of core Calling, especially like for me, I'm very much a pagan. I'm not. I'm not into Wicca or anything like that. But for me, it's something that calls to me as a woman and saying, actually, I'm going to take back something that my ancestors had taken from them mm. and embrace that as a woman and be like, no, actually, this is what I'm interested in. 
And I just think it's a whole bunch of marginalised groups who are finding this nice little niche where you can be yourself and explore something that is something that has been taken away from us previously in history and reclaiming it completely as our own. It's interesting. I think it's as well as reclaiming, it's also about reinterpreting history mm. because witchcraft has somewhat depoliticized a history of what is, as you said, systematic violence against women. And I think seeing it as this kind of fun, maybe London dungeon style thing about <laughs> burning witches completely detaches you from from the reality of that and also how that plays out today. There are still countries that, you know, hunt witches as we speak. Exactly, exactly. And uh, like, look at the way that people are interpreting Wicca now. It's it's very much, as you said, witch core, cottage core, the idea that you can dress in these nice little dresses. Like, like a Stevie midi- Nicks. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and that's it. You've got to live out your ultimate Stevie Nicks fantasy uh, whilst also doing... <laughs> (laughs) this like modern day alchemy which is just so fun but also reclaiming that as you said uh, oppression and violence against women in that traditional sense that we will think of with witches. Now we started with music and I feel it's an appropriate way to close our time together. As we've mentioned popular music is littered with references to the devil everyone from the Rolling Stones to Meatloaf but my kind of satanic verses are the many hours I spent on Guitar Hero 3 Legends of Rock <laughs> playing songs like The Number of the Beast The Devil Went Down to Georgia and even bringing down the boss Lou that's Lucifer himself <laughs> Why does the devil crop up in so much popular music and especially metal music I guess it's you know kind of the the champion of the counterculture mm. I think it, it might might be again people who feel like they don't fit in well who who would seem to be the mascot of not fitting in mm. for queer people um you know for like little nas it might also be because that's also the weapon that's used against you. So yes. it's kind of like gra- grabbing that arrow and turning it back around and firing it at the person who shot it at you, which is you're on the side of the devil, you're going to go to hell. Well, then you just make an empowering music video about going to hell and having a wonderful time. <laughs> so this is Lil Nas X's music video for Montero or Call Me By Your Name, which caused quite a lot of controversy for its so-called satanic rebellion. So he goes to he goes to heaven. It, does, it doesn't really quite work out because he's gay. So I think at some point somebody uh, throws a uh, a butt plug at his head and knocks him out, and then he falls down to hell. <laughs> and there he you know makes an impression on the on the devil uh, by m- maybe doing a, a lap dance. You know, in any way, in any way they get along and and everybody has fun. <laughs> and so I think it's an interesting reappropriation retelling of this threat that you're going to go to hell. Michael, that was the best description that I could possibly imagine of that music video. Just thank you so much for that. (laughs) (laughs) And with that, I think it's time to close our discussion about the devil. Erin, thank you ever so much for joining me today. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. And Michael, for staying up late this evening to talk to us. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Listeners, remember there's a new Bunker Daily every Wednesday, Thursday and Sunday with Start Your Week on Mondays, the main panel show on Tuesdays and the Culture Bunker on Saturdays. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. You can also back us on Patreon. Just see our social media for details. This is Yelena Sofronovich signing out of The Bunker. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Yelena Sofronovich. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Jacob Archbold, the Grand Marquis of Hell, Provenaeus Courts, the Destroyer, Queen of Darkness, the Antichrist. 
appearing in mortal form with the kind permission of Alex Rees. Our assistant producer is Kasia Tomashevich. Our marketing manager is Gina Richard. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Thank you.